episode 22. Uh, we're going to be talking about why your competition is not your problem. Uh, this has been on my list for a while. We're going to knock this one out. It's been something that's been popping up for me conceptually just at work every day because it's eval time for uh, E6s. So uh, it's kind of a crazy time of year because E6 evals uh, play a huge role in whether or not someone's selected for Chiefs. So there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of uh, people wringing their hands over where they're going to fall. Uh, competitively ranking wise and we're going to get into all of that sorry i didn't get this out on friday like i said i would on instagram uh, i forgot this was holiday weekend because i have no social life so <laughs> i generally kind of forget things like that so i actually had some stuff to do i had a halloween party to go to and some other stuff so uh, i kind of forgot that i had things going on so that delayed it a little bit but i'm going to get it done sunday night uh, here before uh, the weekend ends officially. And uh, one of the things that we're going to do first, like always, is the history segment. I'm going to be talking about one of my heroes. This guy uh, is a big deal to me in a couple of different ways. First is a submariner, uh, being a submarine Medal of Honor winner, and just a huge hero in the submarine community as a whole. And I'm going to get into that specifically with the, the story that I chose. But also, um, because of my first submarine, we were given a book called the thunder below and my commanding officer when you get earned your submarine dolphins would kind of sign it for you and inscribe it or whatever and that'd be one of the things you were given when you uh were, got your dolphins pinned on and so i got a copy of that book and we had this big painting of a uss bar war patrol hanging in one of the in, in middle level passageway and it was pretty uh pretty early on admiral eugene flucky was a big figure for me just as a submariner and especially a young submariner made a huge impression on me and then the stories in the book uh it's almost it seems like work a work of fiction when you read it it's so amazing what him and his crew were able to accomplish during world war ii and so i'm going to read uh some stories about admiral flucky and then at the very end i've got one that is kind of a favorite of submariners to tell uh, about how he sank a train, and we'll get to that. But uh, so, with the story, so to paraphrase a popular jam motto with a name like Flucky, you have to be good. And the Washington, D.C. native didn't disappoint. He graduated high school at the age of 15, attended prep schools for two years until entering the U.S. Naval Academy in 1931. Following his graduation in 1935, Flucky served on the battleship Nevada, BB 36, and destroyer McCormick, DD 223, before attending submarine school. When Japan hit Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, Lieutenant Flucky was serving on the submarine Bonita SS-165, completing five war patrols. He then attended the Naval Academy's postgraduate school and prospective commanding officer school, becoming skipper of the Gato-class Barb SS-220 in January 1944. The diesel-powered sub had already served six war patrols in the European theater and its first well assigned to the Pacific Submarine Fleet. Flucky's leadership as commanding officer of the Barb gained him legendary status during the submarine's final five war patrols between January 1944 and August 1945. However, it was the boat's 11th war patrol that earned Lieutenant Commander Flucky the Medal of Honor and his crew the Presidential Unit Citation. Flucky had tracked a concentration of more than 30 enemy ships to Mamquan Harbor off the coast of China in January 1945. The skipper pondered a strategy that included screens of Japanese combatants' shallow water filled with mines, rocks, and fishing junks, and deduced a probable Japanese response to an attack. Blessed with a night of low visibility on January 25th, the sub's captain decided to test his moniker of Lucky Flucky and ordered battle stations torpedoes. 
The sub weaved through the armed escort ships in a mere 30 feet of water. Once the sub was within 3,000 yards of its targets, Barb fired its remaining four forward torpedoes. The sub then quickly brought its stern tubes to bear and let loose four more into the enemy ships. All eight torpedoes struck the six main targets, including a large ammunition ship that exploded, sending even more shrapnel into the enemy ships. Penetrating deep into a harbor filled with enemy combatants to fire eight torpedoes was a breeze compared to what faced the skipper next, getting the barb to safety. Running at a blistering speed of 23.5 knots with artillery shells bursting around them from enemy combatants, the barb raced through the uncharted waters rift with rocks and mines. Just as Lucky Flucky predicted, the enemy ships mistook the fishing junks for the escaping submarine and then hesitated upon reaching the rocky waters. Barb dived into deep water just as a Japanese airplane was spotted overhead. Flucky was to be rotated off Barb after his fourth war patrol, but he bargained a deal with Admiral Charles A. Lockwood, commanding officer of Submarine Force Pacific Fleet, that if that patrol was successful, he could remain on the sub for its twelfth and final war patrol. Flucky certainly held up his end of the bargain, so Lockwood permitted Flucky's fifth war patrol. What the daring skipper and his crew did during that graduation patrol proved yet again Flucky's skill at maneuvering his boat and leading his crew. Besides the Medal of Honor, Lucky Flucky earned four Navy Crosses, the Distinguished Service Medal, and the Legion of Merit, as well as an additional nickname of the Galloping Ghost of the China Coast. Post-war, he served as an aide to the Chief of Naval Operations, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz, and headed several commands, including a two-year stint as Director of Naval Intelligence between 1966 and 1968. Flucky retired as a Rear Admiral in 1972 with more than 40 years in the Navy. He wrote a book about his time on the Barb called The Thunder Below, proceeds of which were used to help former crew members and their wives attend reunions. After his first wife of 42 years, Marjorie, died in 1979, Flucky married Margaret, whom he met while they were running an orphanage in Portugal. They were married 27 years until his death at 93 in 2007. He is buried at the U.S. Naval Academy Cemetery. Serve your country well. Put more into life than you expect to get out of it, Flucky wrote to a new class of submariners in 1999. Drive yourself and lead others. Make others feel good about themselves, and they will outperform your expectations, and you will never lack for friends. Now I'm going to read Admiral Flucky's Medal of Honor citation. The President of the United States, in the name of Congress, takes pleasure in presenting the Medal of Honor to Commander Eugene Bennett Flucky, United States Navy, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty as commanding officer of the USS Barb SS-220 during her 11th War Patrol along the east coast of China from 19 December 1944 to 15 February 1945. After sinking a large enemy ammunition ship and damaging additional tonnage during a running two-hour night battle on 8 January, Commander Flucky, in an exceptional feat of brilliant deduction and bold tracking on 25 January, located a concentration of more than 30 enemy ships in the lower reaches of Nanquan Chiang Mamquan Harbor. Fully aware that a safe retirement would necessitate an hour's run at full speed through the uncharted, mined, and rock-obstructed waters, he bravely ordered Battle Station's torpedoes in a daring penetration of the heavy enemy screen, and riding in five fathoms of water, he launched the barb's last forward torpedoes at 3,000-yard range. Quickly bringing the ship's stern tubes to bear, he turned loose four more torpedoes into the enemy, obtaining eight direct hits on six of the main targets to explode a large ammunition ship and cause inestimable damage by the resultant flying shells and other pyrotechnics. 
Clearing the treacherous area at high speed, he brought the barb through to safety and four days later sank a large Japanese freighter to complete a record of heroic combat achievement, reflecting the highest credit upon Commander Flucky, his gallant officers and men, and the United States Naval Service. So now I'm going to tell this story about how Admiral Flucky sank a train. Uh, so when he was on the USS Barb uh, there during a war patrol, um, there was a pretty daring action that uh, the, him and his crew took place in. And I'm going to read about that now because it's one of, the, one of the stories we all like to talk about when we're bragging about being submariners. And it's one of my favorites. So uh, this is right out of his book, The Thunder Below. July 18, 1945, Patience Bay off the coast of Karafuto, Japan. It was after 4 a.m. and Com- Commander Flucky rubbed his eyes as he peered over the map spread before him. It was the 12th War Patrol of the Barb, the 5th under Commander Flucky. He should have turned command over to another skipper after, after four patrols, but he had managed to strike a deal with Admiral Lockwood to make one more trip with the men he cared for like a father should his 4th patrol be successful. Of course, no one suspected when he had struck the deal prior to his fourth and what should have been his final patrol on the barb that Commander Flucky's success would be so great he would be awarded the Medal of Honor. Commander Flucky smiled as he remembered that patrol. Lucky Flucky, they called him. On January 8th, the barb had emerged victorious from a running two-hour night battle after sinking a large enemy ammunition ship. Two weeks later, in Mamquan Harbor, he found the mother load, more than 30 enemy ships, in only five fathoms or 30 feet of water, his crew had unleashed the sub's four torpedoes and then turned and fired four from the stern. As he pushed the barb to the full limit of his speed through the dangerous waters and a daring withdrawal to the open sea, he recorded eight direct hits on six enemy ships. Then, on the return home, he added yet another Japanese freighter to the tally for the barb's 11th patrol, a score that exceeded even the number of that patrol. What could possibly be left for the commander to accomplish, who, just three months earlier, had been in Washington, D.C. to receive the Medal of Honor? He smiled to himself as he looked again at the map showing the rail line that ran along the enemy coastline. This final patrol had been promised as the Barb's graduation patrol, and he and his crew had cooked up an unusual finale. Since the 8th of June, they had harassed the enemy, destroying the enemy's supplies and coastal fortifications with the first submarine-launched rocket attacks. Now his crew was buzzing excitedly about bagging a train. The rail line itself wouldn't be a problem. A shore patrol could go ashore under the cover of darkness to plant explosives, one of the sub's 55-pound scuttling charges. But this early morning, Lucky Flucky and his officers were puzzling over how they could blow not only the rails, but one of the frequent trains that shuttled supplies to equip the Japanese war machine. Such a daring feat could handicap the enemy's war effort for several days, a week perhaps even longer. It was a crazy idea, just the kind of operation Lucky Flucky had become famous or infamous for. But no matter how crazy the idea might have sounded, the barb skipper would not risk the lives of his men. Thus the problem, how to detonate the charge at the moment the train passed without endangering the life of the shore party. Problem? Not on Commander Flucky's ship. His philosophy had always been, we don't have problems, only solutions. Battle stations. This is 11.27 a.m. No more time to seek solutions or to ponder blowing up the train. The approach of a Japanese freighter with a frigate escort demands traditional submarine warfare. By noon, the frigate is laying on the ocean floor in pieces, and the barb is in danger of becoming the hunted. 6.07 p.m. Solutions. If you don't look for them, you'll never find them. And even then, sometimes they arrive in the most unusual fashion. Cruising slowly beneath the surface to evade the enemy plane now circling overhead, the monotony is broken with an exciting new idea. Instead of having a crewman on shore to trigger the explosives to blow both rail and passing train, why not let the train blow itself up? (laughs) 
Billy Hatfield was excitedly explaining how he had cracked nuts on the railroad tracks as a kid, placing the nuts between two ties so the sagging rail under the weight of the train would break them open. Just like cracking walnuts, he explained, to complete the circuit, detonating the 55-pound charge, we hook in a micro-switch between the two ties. We don't set it off, the train does. Not only did Hatfield have the plan, he wanted to be part of the volunteer shore party. The solution found, there was no shortage of volunteers. All that was needed was the proper weather, a little cloud cover to darken the moon for the mission ashore. Lucky Flucky established his own criteria for the volunteer party. No married men would be included except for Hartfield. The party would include members from each department. The opportunity would be split between regular Navy and Navy Reserve sailors. At least half of the men had to have been Boy Scouts, experienced in how to handle themselves in medical emergencies and in the woods. Finally, Lucky Flucky would lead the saboteurs himself. When the names of the eight selected sailors was announced, it was greeted with a mixture of excitement and disappointment. Among the disappointed was Commander Flucky, who surrendered his opportunity at the insistence of his officers that as commander he belonged with a barb, coupled with a threat from one that I swear I'll send a message to Kamsa back if you attempt this, joining the shore party himself. Even a Japanese POW was held on the barb that was held on the barb, wanted to go, promising not to try to escape. In the meantime, there would be no more harassment of Japanese shipping or shore operations by the barb until the train mission had been accomplished. The crew would lay low, prepare their equipment, train, and wait for the weather. July 22, 1945, Patience Bay off the coast of Karafuto, Japan. Patience Bay was wearing thin the patience of Commander Flucky and his innovative crew. Everything was ready. In the four days, the saboteurs had anxiously watched the skies for cloud cover. The inventive crew of the barb had built their micro-switch. When the need was posed for a pick and shovel to bury the explosive charge and batteries, the barb's engineers had cut up steel plates in the lower flats of the engine room, then bent and welded them to create the needed tools. The only things beyond their control was the weather and time. Only five days remained in the barb's patrol. Anxiously watching the skies, Commander Flucky noticed plumes of cirrus clouds, then white stratus capping the mountain peaks ashore. A cloud cover was building to hide the three-quarters moon. This would be the night. Midnight, July 23, 1945. The barb had crept within 950 yards of the shoreline. If it was somehow seen from the shore, it would probably be mistaken for a schooner or a Japanese patrol boat. No one would suspect an American submarine so close to shore or in such shallow water. Slowly, the small boats were lowered to the water, and the eight saboteurs began paddling toward the enemy beach. Twenty-five minutes later, they pulled the boats ashore and walked on the surface of the Japanese homeland. Having lost their points of navigation, the saboteurs landed near the backyard of a house. Fortunately, the residents had no dogs, though the sight of human and dog tracks in the sand along the beach alerted the brave sailors to the potential for unexpected danger. Stumbling through noisy waist-high grasses crossing a highway and then stumbling into a four-foot drainage ditch, the saboteurs made their way to the railroad tracks. Three men were posted as guards, Marcuson assigned to examine a nearby water tower. The barb's auxiliary man climbed the ladder, then stopped in shock as he realized it was an enemy lookout tower, an occupied tower. Fortunately, the Japanese sentry was peacefully sleeping, and Marcuson was able to quietly withdraw and warn his raiding party. The news from Marcuson caused the men digging the placement for explosive charge to continue their work more slowly and quietly. Suddenly, from less than 80 yards away, an express train was bearing down on them. The appearance was a surprise. It hadn't occurred to the crew during the planning for the mission that there might be a night train. When at last it had passed, the brave but nervous sailors extracted themselves from the brush into which they had leapt to continue their task. Twenty minutes later, the holes had been dug and the explosives and batteries hidden beneath fresh soil. 
During planning for the mission, the saboteurs had been told that, with the explosives in place, all would retreat a safe distance while Hartfield made the final connection. If the sailor who had once cracked walnuts on the railroad tracks slipped during the, this final dangerous procedure, his would be the only life lost. On this night, it was the only order the saboteurs refused to obey, all of them peering anxiously over Hartfield's shoulder to make sure he did it right. The men had come too far to be disappointed by a switch failure. 1.32 a.m., Watching from the deck of the barb, Commander Flucky allowed himself a sigh of relief as he noticed the flashlight signal from the beach announcing the departure of the shore party. He had skillfully and daringly guided the barb within 600 yards of the enemy beach. There was less than six feet of water beneath the sub's keel, but Flucky wanted to be close in case trouble arose and a daring rescue of his saboteurs became necessary. The two boats carrying his saboteurs were only halfway back to the barb when the sub's machine gunner yelled, Captain, another train coming up the tracks. The commander grabbed a megaphone and yelled through the night, Paddle like the devil, knowing full well that they wouldn't reach the barb before the train hit the micro switch. 1.47 a.m. The darkness was shattered by a brilliant light and the roar of an explosion. The boilers of the locomotive blew, shattered pieces of the engine blowing 200 feet into the air. Behind it, the cars began to accordion into each other, bursting into flame and adding to the magnificent fireworks display. Five minutes later, the saboteurs were lifted to the deck by their exuberant comrades as the barb turned to slip back into safer waters. Moving in only two knots, it would be a while before the barb was in the waters deep enough to allow the submarine to submerge. It was a moment to savor the culmination of teamwork, ingenuity, and daring by the commander and all his crew. Lucky Flucky's voice came over the intercom. All hands below deck not absolutely needed to maneuver the ship have permission to come topside. He didn't have to repeat the invitation. Hatches sprung open as the proud sailors of the barb gathered on her decks to proudly watch the distant fireworks display. The barb had just sunk a Japanese train. And so a lot of times you'll hear uh, submariners brag that the only successful invasion of the Japanese mainland during World War II was by Navy submariners. And this is what they're talking about. They're talking about the barb's raiding party. Uh, pretty... <laughs> Pretty incredible, almost ridiculous. It sounds like something out of a Chuck Norris movie, but here we are, and and Admiral Flucky is doing what he does. So uh, I just this was a really great one that I thought was really cool, and I also thought he was such a unique personality in that he wasn't worried about what anyone else was doing or how they were doing it. He was worried about what he had to do for his crew to take care of his mission, uh, and in that way, it relates to our topic today, which is not really worrying about your competition, worrying about you and what you need to do. And we're going to frame that through the prism of competitive rankings. Okay, and so competition breeds success. It's a good thing. Uh, that's how competitive rankings should be impacting you. And if you're caught up in what you need to do to get ahead as an individual and will step over your competition to get there as an individual, you're doing it wrong. Uh, and so junior sailors need to understand and fully understand the intent of competitive rankings and the ways that you should be functioning in it in order to succeed in a team-focused Navy. Uh, and I was speaking to a good friend of mine, that's kind of where this came to the forefront of my mind recently, about some of his peers on board his ship. Uh, so my friend is a board-eligible first-class petty officer, uh, which means he's eligible for promotion to chief, and it's eval time for E6s, as I mentioned earlier. And after reviewing his eval for him and providing input and trying to help him kind of get it where it needed to be before routing, uh, he told me about a peer in his division that is technically his competition. Uh, and the story is all too common. And, and many of you have probably seen another version of the same thing in your units and, and probably in your competitive groups, maybe even in your divisions. Uh, and I call it the all show, no go sailor, right? All show and absolutely no go. This, the one that's all smoke and mirrors, trying to convince everyone that they're stellar sailors through deception, coercion, taking advantage of other sailors, 
uh, superiors, superiors even, or subordinates and peers, they would like literally step over your limp cold body for an, for an early promote. Uh, that sailor is an issue. That sailor is too often getting that EP because they're fooling people, and that sailor's doing it wrong. Uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, first, as always, if you need anything from us, if you have questions, criticisms, suggested topics, whatever, hit us up at don't give up the ship podcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook message us. That's the most popular method. Uh, and then Instagram, you can direct message us and we're at at D guts podcast. Uh, so hit us up in whatever method is best for you and anything you need at all. Uh, please reach out to us. Okay. So let's get into this. We're going to start by explaining competitive rankings. So like, what's, what's the point of competitive rankings? Like you've probably heard of a ranking board, but like, what's the point? So competitive rankings, like I said, are a good thing. They help the board figure out exactly where you fell in your competitive group. And a competitive group is just the people you're being ranked against. So if you're a second class petty officer, you're being ranked against the other second class petty officers on board your, your unit or your ship. Uh, they help cheat the chief smiths accurately rank sailors to frame a peer group and construct accurate evaluations of a sailor's performance. But sailors don't fully understand or always care about this. They get fixated on needing to rank high and get an EP to promote. And they get all wrapped around the axle about something that's not nearly as big of a deal as you think it is. So how do they work? Uh, competitive rankings happen during a ranking board, generally done either by first-class petty officers for the E5 and below uh, groups, and then uh, the chief's mess for the E6 and above. So there's no one way of doing it. It's going to vary from command to command. So the criteria are also going to vary, uh, but you're evaluated on very similar criteria regardless of where you're at and regardless of the method. And I'm going to give you some example criteria. Again, these are just example criteria. They are not like the end-all, be-all criteria, and they are not used universally at all commands. But pretty pretty close somewhere somewhere in here the basic framework uh, is going to be reflected okay so we'll start with primary duties and leadership okay so this is whatever your primary duty you have uh, leadership positions you hold which can also be your primary duty like if you're a leading petty officer uh, in a or a work center supervisor uh, and your depth of responsibility and depth of responsibility meaning on what level you're leading so how how big of an impact does your leadership role have? What is the depth of the responsibility associated with the, either your primary duty or the leadership position that you hold? At this point, I would also consider to some degree how well you're doing it in this category, but that's primarily covered in the next one that I'm going to talk about, which is job performance and uh, sailorization. So always remember that your performance of your responsibilities is far more important than just having those responsibilities. So what does that mean? It means accumulating eval bullets just to make yourself appear hard charging on some piece of paper won't cut it. Every chief I know is far more concerned with your performance of those duties, your actual performance of them on a daily basis. Uh, I'm much more impressed by an LPO or a work center supervisor with one collateral duty that is fiercely committed to doing both of those things to the best of their abilities than I am by an LPO or work center supervisor or just another division member that's got 20 collateral duties that demonstrate subpar leadership performance in those collaterals, in their primary duty, in whatever they do. Not interested at all, show no go. I'm not that guy. Uh, so the next category is Brilliant on the Basics. If you don't know what Brilliant on the Basics is, you should. Uh, look into it. So the easiest way to remember what it is is they have an acronym associated with it, uh, and it's SAILOR, go figure, S-A-I-L-O-R. And it stands for S is sponsorship or the command sponsorship program. A is assign a mentor or the mentorship program. I is indoctrination or command indoc program. L is leadership, uh, and this would be closely related to the career development program, like career development boards. 
ombudsman program is O, and then R is recognizing or sailor recognition and awards programs. So being involved in or demonstrating some kind of leadership of or management of a program involved in those areas is being involved in and uh, having an impact on Brilliant on the Basics. Uh, so collateral duties comes up next. So there are they are usually graded based on the depth of responsibility. So command level collateral duties would be uh, the highest depth of responsibility, then departmental, then divisional, and then how well you're doing the job. Again, how well are you doing it? Not just that you hold it on paper. Uh, meritorious achievements, so any awards or recognition that you receive during the during that reporting period, so like sailor of the year, sailor of the quarter, flag letters of commendation, or, or spot awards that you received recognition for any anything that you did during that reporting period. So any in any way you stood out and were recognized for that. Uh, education, so and this is not just college. So obviously, college counts, college classes or degrees earned uh, count as education. But it's not just that. Uh, this includes things like non-resident training courses uh, that are of any significant value. So like military requirements for a chief petty officer, uh, some kind of correspondence course related to uh, your professional field. Uh, primary and joint professional military education, which can be found on NKO and JKO. Uh, those are big, long professional military education courses or, or PME. Uh, that are sp specifically called out in like the board precepts for for the chiefs board and stuff. They're they're specifically looking for that. Uh, it takes a long time to accomplish, but it's definitely worth it. Uh, professional certification. So any kind of professional certification earned that's related to your career field or a major collateral that you hold. Uh, so like stuff through Navy Cool would count, and then U.S. MAP certificates, etc. So there's a lot that goes into education besides just college. Uh, peer group and community involvement. I don't see enough of this, and I'd like to. Uh, so peer group involvement includes things like the Petty Officer Association or for, for chiefs and above, the Chief Petty Officer Association, and then CPO 365 involvement. And they differ in significance as there can be just involvement in those organizations uh, and in what those groups do. And then there's leading those groups by either being in an elected position or chosen to lead or coordinate a program or training or like with CPO 365 phase one, it could be like PT, which I'll get into next. But being there's being involved and doing something with that organization, which is better than nothing. But then there's also leading, which is obviously ideal. So if you can do that, definitely do that. Physical fitness and military bearing. Okay, PFA scores are gonna figure in. So if you're barely passing or have a PRT BCA failure, uh, that's gonna figure in to where you rank, obviously. Um, it's gonna affect you negatively in that way. And then if you're far exceeding standards and ser or serving a, the program in a leadership position, so like an assistant command fitness leader or a command fitness leader, or you're leading PT sessions, like I mentioned a second ago, a CPO 365, uh, that will figure in very positively. And then military bearing, is kind of a catch-all. Uh, it's the way that I view it anyway, where it's got such a broad definition um, where I kind of use it as a catch-all for the evaluation of like daily interactions with peer subordinates and seniors, uniform appearance and grooming standards, military bearing, and just kind of generally how you conduct yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay, so how does the board use them? So after that exhaustive explanation of how you're competitively ranked, how is it used? Well, when you study your eval and go back to episode 10 for a deeper dive into enlisted evaluations, I don't want to go too deep into that or this episode will end up being over an hour long. So you'll see that there's not an actual area that definitively says that you are number one or number five or number 10 of however many are in your competitive group. Uh, if I had my way, it would say exactly that. There would be no question in anyone's mind exactly where you fell in that competitive group. Uh, good or good or bad. If you're at the bottom, it'd have you at the bottom. If you're at the top, it'd have you at the top. And if you're in the middle or somewhere else, that's what it would say. Uh, but the system as it exists now, 
allows for each command to competitively rank their peer groups and then use those to provide a hard breakout. So there's not a block where I can put that ranking, um, but in block 43, I can provide what's called a hard breakout. And that's the use you'll see when you sign your evaluation if you have one. So there, there's different ways of doing this, but a common example is in block 43 on an E1 to E6 evaluation. Uh, it's gonna read something like, Petty Officer Smith is number one of 27 outstanding first class petty officers, and it's gonna be at the top in all caps. Sometimes they get a little asterisk by it to make it stand out, right? It's the very first thing that, that somebody's gonna read. And this tells the board exactly where Petty Officer Smith stands in that competitive group. And it sends a strong message to the board that this person is performing at a very high level. Uh, there's other ways to utilize Block 43 to communicate this as well uh, so that the top EP sailors are not the only ones broken out in this manner. And sometimes we call those soft breakouts. So you have hard breakouts that are just rankings like I read the example of. And the soft breakouts are kind of like, I could say you're the number one must promote or uh, there's other ways to break people out and and be creative in that way to kind of let the board know that this sailor is performing at a high level uh, and break them out from the competitive group. The other way... This is used that you will not see uh, on your eval when you sign it is to rack and stack everybody at the command. So everybody in your competitive group, like we will literally rank you from top to bottom. We don't stop at you know the top performing sailors. We go from the top all the way to the very last sailor. Uh, and based on where you fall in that stack, your individual trade average will generally reflect that when compared to the commander's summary group average. That's how we're gonna decide whose trade average is what. Uh, in that way, a selection board will compare your average to the summary group average in absence of a breakout, a harder soft breakout, to get a better idea of where you fell in that competitive group. Um, so how do you break out? Well, you know, I want the board to know I'm awesome, so how do I do this? Well, it's, it's, it's really simple. Create value. Make yourself valuable to your leadership, to the command team, to mission accomplishment. Like the all-show, no-go sailor that I talked about earlier, believe that they're doing that, and they're not. They're trying to create the illusion that they're doing that without actually putting in the work. Because putting in that work is hard. Uh, the sailors that break out are the ones that make themselves extremely valuable team members, team leaders, and contributors to mission accomplishment in whatever way is needed. You don't get to pick and choose. Fill the gap. Go where you're needed and help in any way that you can. The next way that I want to talk about is by ignoring your competition just ignore them. I, it sounds counterintuitive, but it's not like, really, I'm telling you, ignore your competition. Who cares what everybody else is doing? Like what difference does it really make? Unless you're at the world's greatest command, people are not raising their hands to do the toughest, most thankless jobs. They aren't taking on the project that she's constantly complaining about, but doesn't have the time to get to. They aren't going down in the weeds with their division when things get, things get hairy. Those places where you don't see a leader leading, those are your places. Those are your gaps. So fill them and you will be recognized for your valuable contributions. You will stand out in a crowd. Trust me, there are plenty of spaces for multiple versions of that leader in any command, just as there are plenty of breakouts to go around if I had that many people to break out, if I had that awesome problem. The next way, right, so find a mentor. So I said, ignore your competition, right? And you got all nervous because, oh my God, if I don't know what they're doing and how, how can I keep up with them and then now I'm behind and then I rank low and then I'll never promote and oh my God, my, my world is ending. Calm down and find a mentor. Look around. 
Look for someone that reflects what you want to be, that reflects, it's just a living, breathing manifestation of your goals. Like the leader that you want to be, when you see a mirror image of, of, of what you project in your mind, what you want to be, when you see it, you will know, and that's your mentor, okay? Generally, I would recommend a chief to a first class trying to make chief, uh, but to a second or third class, find uh, a strong first or second class and have them worry about what everyone else is doing. Have them worry about what you should be doing. What you should be doing probably has absolutely nothing to do with what your peers are doing. Many of them are chasing their damn tails, okay? Don't do that. Trust your mentor, trust your ability, work really, really hard, and you will get to where you wanna be. And then study the system, study it, be informed. I, I want to tattoo it backwards on my forehead so everybody can read it on a daily basis. Be informed. Study the system that advances you. Study the system that recognizes you. Study the system that ranks you. Understand them. While a silently hardworking just monster is a thing to be respected, there's a point at which you need to ensure the people responsible for evaluating, recognizing, and promoting you are aware of what you're doing in the dark. Studying the system allows this. It allows you to ensure that your hard work is accounted for without being a shameless self-promoter like our all-show no-go counterparts. Help your competition. I, sounds like I'm saying the complete opposite of what I just said, said a second ago. Stay with me. I'm looking for leaders. This is the part that I don't see nearly enough of. And when we do, you hear the chiefs saying that they're ready to be a chief. Or you'll hear the first classes say they're already performing as a first class. Or whatever the next step up in rank and responsibility is. I'm looking for leaders. I want somebody that is a leader in their peer group. That doesn't necessarily mean alpha. You don't have to be king of the hill, okay? I'm looking for someone leading the way in physical fitness. I'm looking for someone leading the way in gaining advanced qualifications, leading the way by chairing boards and managing programs. And all of those things should be advancing your peers and subordinates. You should be helping those that you're supposedly competing against. That's what leaders do. I'm looking for team builders. I want my leaders to be noted for their ability to bring together any group of sailors to accomplish a common goal. And if you do that with your division, why would you not do that in your competitive group? You all have the common goal of advancing, right? That's what we're all after. So if getting another Chevron or anchors or whatever is your goal, you should be bringing them together towards that common goal. You should be seeking that responsibility, the increased responsibility of that promotion so that you can be in a position to further impact, develop, and help build your sailors, your teams. That peer group, that competitive peer group is your team. Act like it. It's conclusion time. I'm done yelling at you. It's, con it's conclusion time. So we talked about what competitive rankings are and how they work, uh, how you can break out in your competitive group, and then why you should not be worried about your competition in the way that we constantly get caught up in. We get wrapped around the axle about it for no healthy, productive reason. So in that way, you should not be worried about them at all. Junior sailors understanding competitive rankings and, and the way that they should be approached and how little you should really be worried about them it's critical for your success in a team-focused Navy because it's this is a team event. You don't need to be a number one EP Sailor of the Year to promote. You don't even need an EP at all. You need to lead effectively. You need to follow humbly. You need to proactively be building teams. And if you're doing these things in all phases, especially in the midst of your competition with your competition, you will stand out from the crowd as someone that merits recognition. 
You will stand out as someone that merits increased responsibility, tougher leadership challenges. You will convince those charged with evaluating you, that group, that you are ready. And you'll have done all that without sinking into this self-serving, immature, backstabbing, competitive nature with people who are part of your team. That will reflect in your evaluations. It will reflect in your recognition and it will be communicated to the board, wherever you're ranked. Whatever your promotion rating is, I can tell the board that an above average MP is ready to be a chief and be extremely convincing in doing so. So don't stress out about that. That stuff takes care of itself if you are living up to your leadership responsibilities when you're in the thick of it on a daily basis in the midst of the grind. We are watching you. I promise you we see you. If you're the strong, silent doer or the all show, no go skater, we see you. I promise you we see you. So don't worry about your imaginary competition because they're just that, a figment of your imagination. Competitive rankings are a tool for the mess and the board. So don't concern yourself with that. Just concern yourself with being the best sailor you can possibly be in whatever capacity in which you are called to serve. All right, And the rest is a result of those efforts. As always, if you need anything from us at all, if you want me to tell you, if you want to tell me to stop yelling at you all the time, uh, whatever you need from us, hit us up, contact us, let us know how we're doing. Uh, don't give up the shit podcast at gmail.com. Facebook message us or direct message us on Instagram at DGuts Podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. This was a topic that it had been eating at me a little bit. I, my buddy told me that story when I was out in Hawaii recently. And then uh, it kind of stewed for a while, and we talked about it a lot because he was real frustrated with the guy was kind of fooling some people, and so he was a little frustrated with that his hard work in the dark wasn't getting recognized. Uh, and we talked through it, and I think he's in a much better place with it uh, as far as how he deals with that, and that he's just at peace with the fact that he knows he's doing it right. So he lays his head down on his pillow at night and, and gets a sound night's sleep because he knows that he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's taking care of his charges, and that's what you need to be doing. The rest, the rest will work itself out. Uh, it just will. Because it's kind of like if you find yourself, even even if somebody like this fooled everybody and they pulled the wool over everybody's eyes and they got the EP and they just lied and cheated and stole their way into anchors. And it's happened more than once. So let's say that that happens. Let's say they fooled people and they got into that position. No one respects that leader. No one respects that leader. No one, no one wants to follow that person because they like snuck their way in the back door and like... You know, like, they very quickly stand out in the in the group, right? Like, the Chiefs mess will know, you know, or the first class mess. Let's say that, like, I mean, the first class mess knows that that person is a clown, right? And so, is that how you want to do it? Is that is that the leader that you want to be? You know, like, if you had that opportunity, would you have done it that way? No. So, who cares? Don't worry about what they're doing. Don't worry about what your competition's doing. Don't. Because the ones that matter are the ones you're going to be working together with as a team. The ones that don't matter, that you should be ignoring, are the ones that are doing it wrong anyway. And that if you can, bring them into your way of thinking. If you can't, don't worry about that. you got better things to do with your time, like develop your sailors uh, and take care of them and lead them towards mission accomplishment. I am done rambling for this week. Uh, I hope episode 22 was a... a a success and we'll be back later this week i'm sure i'll have a, a some spin the yarns coming out this week i kind of i didn't have a lot come upside my head really i didn't have a lot of stuff i couldn't really think i, I kept looking at the microphone and i'm like i should really do a spin the yarn but I, I didn't really have anything to talk about so i didn't so there you go uh but hopefully 
Uh, I'll get a spin the yarn out this week as well. And then uh, we'll be back next week with another topic. Same bad time, same bad channel. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, continue doing all the amazing things you're doing out there. And don't give up the shit. Thank you.